I've noticed that Professor Weinberg has been following the news, so perhaps you can fill us in on the national emergency? No, I'm uh, reading a 19th century Italian novel, uh, but I can fill you in on the plague in Milan. That's very informative. Okay, we have two guests this afternoon. Our principal speaker is Derek Liebert, uh, but we also have David Watley from UT Arlington. He is the author of a book on Eisenhower, Churchill, Eden, and the Cold War. And David, we're very glad that you could drive down from Arlington this morning to be with us this afternoon. Uh, Derek Liebert has written several books uh, about the bureaucracies in Britain and the United States, and above all on the uh, problem of the Cold War. Uh, his uh, books include From Korea to Afghanistan, uh, Special Operations and the Destiny of Nations, and How America's Cold War Victory Shapes Our World, and the most recent book, America Confronts the British Superpower. Derek, we're very glad to have you with us. It's an honor to be invited to talk at the preeminent center of British studies. And what I propose to talk about over the next 40 minutes is less history per se than teasing out as we go along how this story pertains to today. The last book that Professor Lewis referred to is titled Grand Improvisation. America confronts the British superpower, 1945 to 57. And therein are explicit lessons for today. Because unless one understands this story and the context, it makes it pretty hard to fully grasp America's insularity that we're seeing once more in our retreat from alliance systems. It makes it tricky as well to understand the British perspective on European unity and federation, or indeed events in the Middle East. It also, unless we take a closer look, it's hard to understand the preeminent players of those dozen years, say, after World War II, starting with Churchill. Dislight, as biographers always do, Churchill's return to power in October 51 and his second time at Downing Street until April 1955, just glosses over what, say, one of his successors, Harold McBillan, saw as the most dramatic time of Churchill's life and arguably the most articulate with the most riveting of speeches. But biographers, such as a recent thousand-page biography, would devote 30 pages to Churchill again as prime minister. It also means that we're unfamiliar with some of the titanic one-time figures of American history. Figures who, after World War II, stood against the sky and are now completely forgotten, like Treasury Secretary John Wesley Snyder, 
who was easily the most powerful secretary of the treasury in U.S. history, which I'll refer to as we proceed. My purpose also is to correct many, many of the myths that surround those dozen years after World War II and that keep on echoing through the decades, through today, until they even get into the history textbooks to further mislead. Notions about the Truman Doctrine of 1947 that are demonstrably incorrect or about how America initially got entangled in Vietnam in the early 1950s or, for instance, how the U.S. abetted what Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion on New Year's Eve 1949 saw as a declaration of war by the British Empire against Israel. How all of this has been lost and forgotten and is highly worth revisiting for current purposes. Most of all, I want to debunk one of the most vexing myths of the 20th century that strongly shape affairs today. And this is the myth. It's universally believed that after World War II, Britain was so dispirited, worn down, financially weak, that it didn't have the gumption and the spirit to maintain its global role, and that the U.S., as the new superpower, arrived and assumed various worldwide responsibilities. That's quite, quite the contrary of what happened, as I will argue. Indeed, the term superpower was coined in 1944 by a professor at Columbia University. And the British Empire and Commonwealth was the archetypical superpower, all the more so after World War II ended. Of course, the US had an atomic monopoly. Of course, we had unsurpassed industrial weight. Soviet Russia, for its part, was the greatest unitary land power in history with the mightiest, mightiest army that ever existed. But by the definitions of a superpower, which means global deployment, network of alliances, ability to project power into every corner of the planet, a tentacular intelligence apparatus worldwide. There was, for a number of years after World War II, only one superpower. The US came rather late into the game. If we look at 1945, Churchill is prime minister until that summer. He's, elect he's ousted from power ignominiously to the surprise of many. And into office come the Labor Party bully boys. These are tough guys. These are men who had grown up in anything but a school of moderation. Whereas Churchill and FDR could talk with some sympathy about Stalin and Stalinism, that wasn't remotely the case with the tough guys of the British Labor Party. And the story through 1946, 1947, is very much the most formidable of British Foreign Secretaries, Ernest Bevan, the son of a 40-year-old washerwoman he never knew who his father was, rose to probably be the foremost Foreign Secretary in British history about how 
Bevan very much stood up to Stalinism and, as we'll also see, wrote a great deal of U.S. policy, standing up during the Berlin blockade of 1948 and, not least, entering NATO. The British were not bankrupt, as Max Hastings and other historians would argue. In 1945, they were in dire financial straits. But bankruptcy is an unambiguous word. It doesn't lend itself to squishiness. The British were not bankrupt. They were in financial currency exchange predicaments. The Americans didn't regard the British as bankrupt at all. We believed they were going to be quite the contender in the post-war world. Britain's two great trading rivals had been wiped off the map, Japan and Germany. Britain was expected to recover fast, especially with the help of a U.S. loan, a one-time loan as it was supposed to be. And let it not be forgotten, the British had the commanding heights of the industries of the future. That would be jet aviation, life sciences, and very quickly, atomic civil, civilian power. They also had a sprawling empire. Quarter of the globe, 600 million people. The US, which traditionally has lived behind its ocean moats and high tariffs, came very slowly to an understanding that there was an Anglo-Saxon colossus on the planet that hadn't the slightest interest in stepping aside. A one-time loan for British recovery was made in December 1945. It nearly didn't get ratified by, or approved by Congress because of events in the Middle East, in Palestine. It was a near-run thing. The British were then expected to get into gear real fast and assume a role perhaps as global peacekeepers, as partners, it all remained unclear. Maybe FDR type decolonization was to be preferred. What got into focus in 1947, however, was Americans becoming more and more fearful of Stalinism. And the British in early 1947, buffaloing the Americans evermore into a global role. The British in 1947, February, March, the great foreign secretary, Ernest Bevan, announced that, oh, we are going to leave Greece, which had been a long time British political military interest. They implied they would leave the Eastern Mediterranean as well. I would argue that the weight of evidence is that the British had no such intention. Proof is that they escalated during that time. The Americans, however, we got the bit in our teeth. We appropriated massive amounts of money. The Truman Doctrine is a blank check, essentially, to counter terrorism and terrorist activities anywhere in the world. And move relatively fast, we did, into global political military engagements. British by end of 47 were again in financial straits. The US helped bail them out. Recovery, it was always believed, was going to be right around the corner. 
The inflection point, as they say in business, occurred in 1948. That's where the Americans got truly, truly scared. Ten years after Munich, the Czech coup of March 1948, when the last parliamentary system in Eastern Europe was crushed by the Stalinists, and then, of course, the Berlin blockade. It was at that point that U.S. ambivalence toward the British Empire and Commonwealth and what they brought to the table ended pretty quickly. We realized that we wanted big mediating bodies between ourselves and the rest of the messy world, perhaps the British Empire, hopefully the UN. It's hard to see the U.S. thrusting out for power, certainly at that time. Uh, the British also had enormous displays of political military might. For example, the 1948 Olympics were held in London, not in Baltimore as some had thought, or in Lausanne, which was another contender. But George VI had quietly used his influence to make sure that they would be in London, as had been planned before World War II. It was a marvelous spectacle. It was done to impress the world that London was not a bombed-out city, the biggest in the world, but that it was a vibrant, exciting center of the planet. The Berlin blockade certainly got U.S. attention, especially when Churchill that summer compared it to Munich 10 years before. But here again, an example of U.S diffidence in going into the world. One, we expected the British to do half of the storied airlift in the Berlin airlift. They were supposed to carry half the tonnage. And the Americans also held back from any single military commitment on the continent. For example, had the Red Army blasted to the west toward the channel, the shortest way would have been to go through the British occupation zone of Western Germany. The American military was under explicit orders. If the Red Army does that, just stand down, don't do anything. Only respond if American troops are attacked. That policy didn't change until Truman had been safely elected that November of 48. So time and time again, we see the US standing back, certainly in Europe. What was underway in the Middle East was an unusual tale because that is the one area that the U.S. did get engaged in, in the future of Palestine. And it was done because of American homeland passions, guilt about the Holocaust, the uncertainty of the British military commitment. And Israel, of course, declared its independence in May 1948, and the Truman administration was the first to recognize an independent Israel, utterly contrary to the advice of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and to Secretary of State Marshall. It was a cynical move by Harry Truman, who had no especially strong feelings about Israel. That is demonstrated by what happened fast after Truman was elected in 48. The British 
as well as the Americans, had had enough of Zionist terror. That is shown in September, and Zionist terror is what it was called at the time, by all concerned. That was shown in September 1948 when Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan and Secretary of State George Marshall stood on the tarmac at Orly Airport as the body of the UN peace negotiator, Count Folk Bernadette, was taken off of the C-47. They agreed that enough was enough in the Middle East. War was raging between the Arabs and the Israelis. The Israelis had the best of it, which was not a surprise to many of the Americans, such as Under Secretary of State Bob Lovett, who predicted an easy Israeli victory given the weight of Israeli manpower and technology. The Israelis go storming into Egypt. The Egyptians had a defense relationship with the British. What I referred to previously on New Year's Eve 1948 that has essentially been lost in the archives is the British gave an ultimatum to Ben-Gurion, leave Egypt immediately or the worst will follow. Significantly, that was handed to Ben-Gurion under Truman's signature by the American ambassador in Israel, because the British didn't recognize Israel. And Ben-Gurion's response was, this is a declaration of war from the British Empire, and of course Israel left Egypt within the first week of January 1949. This is not an historical curiosity, because this information was deliberately leaked by Dwight Eisenhower on February 16, 1957, when he came down truly hard on Israel to again give up Egyptian territory. So as you can see, the world is in this kaleidoscopic mess by 1949, whether it's Europe, the origins of NATO, the US is pushed, pushed, pushed by the new allies to commit manpower to Europe, utterly contrary to what Congress had pledged over and over. Congress was told there'll be no American troops remaining in Western Europe. The US had minimal competence in its ground forces that were there. About 12 tanks in the US Army were capable of combat in 1949. Remember as well that the British were the slowest to demobilize after World War II. The Americans, the Russians demobilized real fast. The British much, much slower. And what the press reported was a million British imperial troops worldwide and about a thousand garrisons. That wasn't too far off as would be proved. The British, of course, were in their currency squeezes over and over again. However, British productivity had boomed far beyond anyone's imagination after World War II. And let's not forget what was happening on the US scene. This is constantly forgotten by historians. Americans lived under the terrible, terrible shadow of the Depression. The Americans were utterly convinced, except for a very few, economists that the depression would come roaring back in 1946. Why? Because 10 million youngish men were being demobilized because of a supposedly crippling 128% of GDP national debt 
and because of the complete cutdown in government demand. It was certain the Depression was going to come back. And the Republicans got elected to sweep the Congress in November 46. And you can see every decision in U.S. foreign policy significantly for about the next 10 years was influenced by fear of the renewed depression right until 54, uh, 55. China, of course, to look at another part of the world, was supposedly being swallowed by Stalin. And our ally, Chiang Kai-shek, not to be the last corruption, incompetence, his forces were caving fast. And it looked as if all of Sino-Soviet communist expansion was swallowing up much of the globe. To add to the horrors of 1948 was what was truly expected to be the worst economic smash-up by far of the 20th century. It was barely averted in 1949. It was the one example in US history where the State Department was functionally taken over by the Department of the Treasury to work out that crisis, which was avoided by a whisker. So China is falling or being lost to the Russians. The Russians then, to America's universal horror, come up with an atomic bomb in August 1949. The British are in another currency squeeze. And Washington, again, as in 47, around the Truman Doctrine, starts panicking. What does this mean? What might become of the British Empire? What does this mean for America's role in the world? What was launched on September 1st, 1949, 10 years to the day after Hitler invaded Poland, was one of the most consequential of National Security Council reports and studies that I think has been undertaken ever. And the purpose was to understand the future of the British Empire and how it pertained to American interests. It was an enormously ambitious study. Ten months were devoted to it, starting September 1st, 49. By the time it ended in July 1950, America would be at war. It was an attempt to audit the empire, to quantify what were British capabilities around the world and how did that play into US interests. It required top level studies by the Department of Defense, by Central Intelligence, with involvement for Treasury, and the studies were coordinated on the National Security Council staff at the White House. NSC 75 ultimately had an anodyne title, British military commitments, British military capabilities. But this is why it is significant. The conclusion was that the British Empire and Commonwealth hadn't retreated one whit since 1945, nor would it be likely to retreat or be weakened in the foreseeable future through the 1950s. And if it did so, that would be seriously compromising to the US geopolitical position because Americans, for reasons financial, technological, and experiential, were unable to fill the role that the British Empire still possessed as peacekeepers. 
So you hear that, and you'd say, well, what about the British getting out of Palestine in 47, 48? Or what about the British leaving the Indian subcontinent and giving independence to what became India and Pakistan? How could anyone look at a portrait of the world in the mid-century point and say the British Empire hadn't retreated and might be as strong as ever? It's by the way that was both presented by the British and understood by the Americans. The British, for example, had not left India and Pakistan, quite the contrary. The Foreign Office, Secretary Bevan was explicit about this. The empire was now stronger than ever in the subcontinent. Why? Because wedded into its global financial, political, and military alliance system now was the largest democracy in the world, India, and the world's largest Muslim nation, Pakistan. Therefore, this made the global entity of the empire and commonwealth all the stronger. So one finds titans of the US Senate, like Robert Taft of Ohio, easily the most powerful man on Capitol Hill, saying the British haven't become weakened, they are reorganizing, they are decentralizing. The whole entity with its million men, its who knows what in reserve, its global deployments, is as strong as ever. And as the world is crumbling, or so it's seen, losing China, soon Soviet-Russian aggression in Korea, the empire is needed. The US can't do it. That is the mid-century perspective, that is essentially the summary of National Security Council Report 75 that Truman received just within weeks of Stalin launching the Korean War. There's been some ambiguity among scholars about Soviet culpability. The question is open and shut. Stalin had been preparing and pushing the North Korean attack on the South since March 1949, with enormous numbers of tons of petroleum, logistical equipment moving across Russia to prepare the invasion of June 25th, 1950. The Americans then had a disastrous experience in Korea. The original mission, of course, was to rescue South Korea from communist Stalinist aggression. We nearly were kicked off the peninsula, but General MacArthur was able to then rout the North Koreans in September 1950. Again, the Americans got the bit between their teeth, indeed encouraged by the British, as has been forgotten, and we charged into North Korea, right up to the Chinese border. What followed is as you know, is the worst defeat in American history, certainly the longest military retreat ever in our history. Korea, to this end, can be seen as our first of quite a few failed wars in a row. 5,000 Americans were killed to <coughs> accomplish the original mission of rescuing South Korea. Nearly 28 were killed in the failed invasion of North Korea. 
<coughs> to that end, by the time the Korean armistice occurred in July 53, it was a sad defeat for the United States. And one of the rallying points was never again, never again would America find itself in such a position. The Middle East is in various forms of turmoil, certainly in Iran, Iranian nationalists, patriots, however one wanted to define them at the time, nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company. The British got all set to invade in summer 1951 to invade Iran. The fact that the Russians still had a friendship treaty with Iran, and it made it abundantly clear that the British entered Iran, the Russians would then intervene themselves, didn't seem to hold back the Labour government one whit. Again, these are tough guys who knew communism and had fought the communists nearly in the streets in the 20s and 30s in defending their labor unions. Let's not also overlook some of the provocative attempts of some of the toughest of these labor bully boys, like Nye Bevan, who was touting preemptive war against the Soviets. He suggested a British preemptive attack in 47 and then again in 48, with or without the Americans, but the Russians could not be allowed to become too strong. The empire had to respond. So the empire, which according to today's historians had supposedly left the Eastern Mediterranean in 47, hadn't even begun to flex its muscles. It assembled a 70,000 man invasion force to make short work of Iran. This got the Americans' attention real, real fast. And cables from the White House state and especially the Joint Chiefs of Staff stand down, stand down. Prime Minister Clement Attlee of Britain had the sense not to proceed. But by this time, the Labour government was tired and weary. And Churchill was circling in for the kill. And he was mocking the Labour government for its kicked spaniel diplomacy. And he won, to no one's surprise, in October 1951. And the Americans knew that now we are in for a truly rough time. The notion of Churchill being a friend of Franklin Roosevelt's, or at least FDR being a friend of Churchill's, is fanciful. John Meacham has written a book about the classic friendship of FDR and Churchill. There was nothing remotely like that. Churchill was a romantic. He might have romanticized his ties to FDR. Franklin Roosevelt did not have friends. Male, <laughs> male friends, anyway. And Churchill returning to power was now under no constraints to suck up to the Americans as he had been compelled to do throughout World War II. There's still so much about Churchill that hasn't been understood, a lot of which is distilled into his second time in power. Churchill was often called in his own country a Yankee careerist because, of course, he was half American and he was a careerist. And when he came to power, and the men he brought to power had 
few doubts about where the British Empire and Commonwealth stood in the world. They realized, of course, its financial constraints. They understood utterly its industrial advantages, especially in jet aviation, which the Americans still had to license. They understood as well that if the United States had any hope of ever attacking Russia or counterattacking Russia, it would have to be done off of British airfields because the B-36 bombers hadn't been brought online yet. Remember, we had atomic bombing airfields in Britain since the Berlin blockade. In theory, we needed British permission to attack the Soviet Union. Churchill began playing hardball right away with the Americans. He implied that those bases could be removed if he saw fit. He implied as well that if he got jerked around too much by the Americans over Iran and over European Federation, he might pull the British Commonwealth Division out of Korea. He spoke about the immense expenses that the British public was bearing for the sake of defending American interests around the world. Malaya specifically, with its exports of tin and rubber. The British position from the Labour government to the Conservative government in foreign policy changed little. The British argued tirelessly that the only way to defend the colony of Malaya with its vital exports that were needed not only for the health of the British economy, but for the European economy, because if the British went down, Europe was, Western Europe was expected to go down. The only way Malaya could be defended was along the Mekong and in Vietnam. And the French couldn't do it themselves. And the Americans had to become engaged, as we did. To write a book, as one prominent diplomatic historian does, about the origins of America's war in Vietnam, embers of war, and to neglect the role of the British, and especially the High Commissioner, Malcolm MacDonald, in Southeast Asia. It's like writing a book about America's war in the Pacific against Japan and not mentioning Malcolm, not mentioning uh, General MacArthur. Malcolm MacDonald was the British High Commissioner in Southeast Asia. He ruled out of the world's largest naval facility still, which was Singapore. It was the Asian equivalent of Suez, which was military forces Middle East. Only Norfolk, Virginia might have rivaled Singapore at that time. Malcolm MacDonald was easily the most influential figure on US foreign policy concerning Southeast Asia from as soon as we got aware of Indochina, 46, right through, right until 55. Everybody in Washington concerned with US-Asian policy made their pilgrimage to Singapore to get briefed by McDonald. Highly convincing. He was known as the wise man of Asia. So if you're a congressman, Jack Kennedy, 
if you're a brand new vice president Richard Nixon, if you're the publisher of the New York Times, or if you're Harry Luce running the Time Life Empire, you go to Singapore and you get your briefing from Malcolm McDonald. Malcolm McDonald will helpfully fly you over the Malayan jungle, although he stopped that practice when Adlai Stevenson had a near-fatal helicopter crash. But he will always show you that the only way to defend Malaya and all of Southeast Asia is to draw the line in Vietnam, which means backing the French. And we're there with you to back the French. The Middle East, of course, is in its septic terror for terror and was getting into messier predicaments by 53. The Eisenhower administration was far more accommodating to British interests and essentially served as the trigger man, as one historian called it, for the British to get rid of the Mossadegh government. In Israel and Palestine, back and forth, threats, violence, but the U.S., the Eisenhower administration, increasingly realized it couldn't stay away. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles was the first Secretary of State ever to go to the Middle East, which he did on May 11th. And his trip started in Cairo, arriving in Cairo that afternoon of May 11th. The afternoon of May 11th, Greenwich Mean Time, Churchill stood up in Parliament. And he had two messages. One, that the Americans were unhelpfully obstructionist in dealing with the Soviets, Stalin having died in March. And two, moreover, and this was his true point, right at this minute, as we speak here in Parliament, to paraphrase his eloquence, the American Secretary of State is arri arriving in Cairo as I'm speaking. And we have a special agreements with the Americans. And in a nutshell, he insisted to the world, speaking in Parliament as Secretary of State Dulles lands in Cairo, that the British and the Americans were totally aligned against the forces of Egyptian nationalism, which was outrageously untrue. But he wasn't just misspeaking, because as Dulles is trying to calm the waters of Egyptian nationalists in May 1953, a new military junta had seized power the year before, Churchill sends in a commando battalion to bulk up in Suez, which by then had perhaps 160,000 fighting men and support facilities. That was the British occupation against which the Egyptian nationalists screamed. By 1954, guerrilla war against the British had pushed and gone a long way for a Suez deal for the British to yield in Suez. And I won't go into the Suez crisis itself, but it is intertwined with relations deteriorating within Israel. The Eisenhower administration had a particularly clear-cut approach to handling Israel. It was to take Israel before the United Nations Security Council for sanctions. 
for what Eisenhower called expansion and violence. And Israel was condemned in the United Nations at U.S. urging first in March 54 and then in January 56. This is all unrelated to Suez. And what we saw, one way or another, despite the threats now for sanctions against Israel, as it was terror and counter-terror across the borders, was the Middle East turning ever more into a dangerous morass that we couldn't stay away from. Most of you, all of you, I'm sure are familiar with the Suez Crisis. Britain, France, and Israel collude to invade Egypt. The Americans, essentially, the Eisenhower administration saw it as an attack on ourselves. We came down hard with threats and sanctions. This led, in late December, early 57, to what Eisenhower, Secretary of State Dulles, and Richard Nixon together called the Declaration of Independence from British Authority. And they called it a Declaration of Independence. No longer would we be deferential, would we bite our tongues in dealing with imperial foreign policy. The Declaration of Independence was repeated at least twice and once by the Canadians. And you could see official language in the U.S. change overnight. Until then, the Americans had spoken about the United States as a leader of the free world. Eisenhower asserts this Declaration of Independence, and from here on in, right through today, we are the leader of the free world, the leader of the West. Looking back, Richard Nixon would say it was only at this point that America asserted itself in the world as leader of the West. The story, in conclusion, doesn't end with Suez, but I end it with Sputnik. Because the Sputnik success in October 57 was, of course, an ICBM competition between the Americans and the Russians. And the Russians showed that they had the most effective satellite and ICBM combination first. It wasn't just the shock of being able to launch a satellite around the world. It was that America's launches on live TV kept on failing and failing for months as our ICBMs blew up. And it led to a great sense of vulnerability in the US. The combination of this feeling of exposure to thermonuclear incineration, plus this declaration of independence from the British Empire, really now let the Americans move forth very much on their own, asserting their primacy. By now, by any definition, we were a superpower. There was no longer a concern with having British air bases or not. Giant Forrestal-class aircraft carriers were being deployed. U.S. had more bases worldwide. We clearly were playing to our strengths, mass-producing everything from military hardware to thermonuclear warheads. The End point comes where U.S. foreign policy, I would argue, truly changed in the early 60s. That magnetic young senator from Massachusetts who spoke of a world half slave, half free, who spoke of the red tide coming in under the Eisenhower administration, who mocked that five-star golf-playing general camping out in the White House. 
this was all the excitement of emergency and foreign policy henceforth would bring in academics. Year by year, professional foreign service officers would be marginalized by the appointees of the political spoil system as it is today. And this infatuation with emergency, with excitement, with <coughs> America's role in the world, full of the belief that everybody truly wants to be like us, that we can manage the planet as well as we manage our multi-trillion dollar domestic economy, that there is very little need to do our homework, that interventions in Vietnam or Iraq would be a cinch. All of these are the delusions and excitements with which we live today. And that is why it is worth going back and re-examining the sources of how we got to where we are.